Good morning. Scripture read comes from Matthew 27, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 10. So we can open up our Bibles. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is, it, what is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this money into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. You know, as we look at Scripture, there are two classic illustrations of suicide, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. Now, it's true there are two others that we know about uh, who killed themselves, uh, Saul and his armor bearer, but that was a little bit of a different situation there in the midst of battle. They were being defeated, and he didn't want to be taken and uh, whatever done to him by the enemy. But in the classic definition of suicide, there are two and only two. The Old Testament suicide is Ahithophel, who betrayed David, and in the New Testament, of course, is Judas, who betrayed Jesus. And in both cases, they took their lives out of the guilt of betraying an innocent man. Their plans went sideways and everything fell apart, and so not being able to deal with the anxiety that came about as a result of it all they decided to take their lives. Now, I read this week that each year, twice as many Americans kill themselves than kill others. Suicide ranks among the top ten killers in the United States, but we don't often hear about it. From what I understand, and I'm not an expert in the field, but there are a number of reasons why people kill themselves, and I'm not going to delineate all of them. That's not the point of the message. I'm not going to go off and speak on suicide this morning. But the most dominant reasons, they say, comes from guilt. Guilt, either real or imagined, or put upon us by others. And so the people take their lives to inflict on themselves a severe punishment which they believe that they, that they deserve. They've sinned in such a degree or done something in their minds so horrible that they imagine there is no other remedy to that guilt. And they can't see any way out from under the anxiety and the pressure of their own conscience. But that's a wonderful thing about knowing Jesus. Jesus can free us from that burden of guilt. He says, come to me, what? All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's a promise. Now, sometime, uh, some other time, you can read about the suicide of Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 17. 
But this morning we're going to be delving into the portion of Scripture that treats the suicide of Judas Iscariot. He could probably be considered one of, if not the greatest human tragedy who ever lived and died. He, like the other 11 disciples, had the greatest privilege of living and walking and talking with Jesus himself, the Son of God. And yet at the end of verse 5, it tells us that he went out and hanged himself. It was a crime against God and a crime against self. One commentator wrote, It is to rebelliously usurp sovereignty. It is to take a prerogative on oneself that belongs only to God who gives life and takes life. In short, it is an act of sin. Now, if suicide can, can be and often is a result of unrelieved guilt then we can imagine and understand the suicide of Judas Iscariot. His guilt was so overwhelming. And due to the fact that he committed the worst crime that any man ever committed by betraying the most innocent man, the only perfect man that ever lived. And he really had only two choices to relieve himself of this guilt. Either he could go to Jesus Christ, whom he had betrayed, and ask forgiveness, or he could eliminate himself. And Judas opted for self-destruction. So in our passage today, Matthew takes us away from the trial of Christ just for a moment to follow the story of Judas to its tragic end. Now, I don't think Matthew's primary purpose in giving us the details of this story of Judas was to just tell us the story of Judas and that he got what he deserved. But I believe his primary purpose was to demonstrate the innocence, the purity, the perfection, and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Throughout his gospel, Matthew is presenting Christ. Matthew is presenting the King. And even in this scene that we'll see today, Jesus Christ is exalted against the evil backdrop of the horrible death of Judas. And that's what I hope we're going to see as we go through the message this morning. Now, the way Matthew does this is by giving us a series of three contrasts. The first of which is found in the first two verses, and that is a contrast between the unjust leaders versus the sinless Christ. And as we went through the first two phases of the Jewish trials of Christ, we became very aware of the illegality, the injustice, and the immorality of that whole trial. There's no legitimate accusation against Jesus. There's no defense permitted. False witnesses called and bribed to give false testimony. Judas was bribed as a traitor. The trial had been held in the middle of the night, which was uh, forbidden. The trial was held in Caiaphas' home, which was forbidden. Every single statute which accommodated their justice system was violated. In the midst of it all, the silent, majestic Christ stands innocent. Try as they did, they could come up with absolutely nothing. An amazing testimony to the sinlessness of our Lord. So, what they end up doing is executing Jesus for the truth. For being who he really is. He stands as a sinless Messiah, the Son of God, in contrast to the unjust leaders who have tried to accuse him. And the contrast between the two two paints the majesty of Jesus in just a beautiful, clear way. 
So we come to verse 1 here in chapter 27. Um, and when we, by the time we get to verse 1 here, phase 1 and phase 2 of the Jewish trial has taken place between 1 and 3 a.m. And since that time, Jesus has been bound and kept as prisoner in Caiaphas' home. And there, waiting um, till dawn, they were waiting for a very quick trial, uh, first thing in the morning, so to give kind of a pretense of legality to their illegal trial that they've been holding all night long. Now, they know the law requires it to be held in the daytime. And they know it requires to be, required to be held in the judgment hall. So they wait till dawn, really early. No one's up yet. The crowd's not out yet. Super early in the morning to have a very quick trial in the judgment hall right at sunrise. So verse 1 says, early in the morning, Friday morning, sunrise. Remember, the verdict had already been given, had already been made in the trial overnight. And it says, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. Now, the Greek literally says, they took counsel. In fact, Luke chapter twenty-two sixty-six says, they led him into their counsel. Which indicates that to make it proper and legal, they at daybreak took him to the proper judgment hall where all of this was supposed to have been taking place in the first place. It also indicates that this is the moment when they passed a resolution. They took a vote. So it would appear to be a legal trial to put Jesus to death. Now, interestingly enough, that vote was not unanimous. There was one vote, at least, against. And that was Joseph of Arimathea. You remember that name. The one who asked for Jesus' body and put in his own tomb um, after the death of Christ. Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin at that time. And Luke tells us in the 23rd chapter that he had not consented to their decision and action. So we know at least there is one vote against. Why would he vote against? Because Matthew tells us later on, we're going to be seeing it uh, down the road here, that Joseph of Arimathea had become a follower of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? But despite his descent, they overruled him and they sentenced him to death, and they knew they couldn't actually kill him themselves. John tells us in chapter 18, verse 31, that they actually verbalized it when Pilate uh, told them, uh, judge him by your own law. They said, but we have no right to execute him. And knowing and understanding this, verse 2 in our passage in Matthew 27 says, So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Which then starts the whole Roman trial process, which we're going to start looking at next Sunday. The contrast couldn't be starker. During this whole debacle of a trial, having done all they could do all night long, with all the resources at their disposal, they came up with nothing No accusation that was legitimate against Christ. And therefore, he shines in all his glory and his majesty and his beauty, and they are shown to be the ugly ones. They are the liars. They are the bribers. They are the murderers who kill the innocent Son of God to preserve their own sin. That brings us to verse 3, where we see the second contrast, and that is between the guilty Judas and the innocent Jesus. A very dramatic scene begins to unfold here. It's fascinating to see how the Holy Spirit takes the guilt of Judas 
and this whole ugly scene and uses it to portray the innocence of Christ. Verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, very literally, Judas the betrayer, that's his new title for all of eternity, Judas must have been hanging around, even in those early hours, watching the procedure. And the Greek word means to see with the eyes. When, when Judas saw, to see with the eyes, he must have seen the vote take place and then seen him bound and taken off to Pilate. And he had a reaction that I think even shocked him. I don't think he was expecting this reaction at this moment. He had that same kind of devastating reaction that Peter had when Jesus looked at Peter. We talked about that. When Judas saw Jesus condemned and hauled away, he was overcome by his own guilt. Matthew says he was seized with remorse. Why? Because in every man and woman, God has placed a sense of right and wrong. People know when they are doing wrong, whether they want to admit it or not. And Judas was hit with this wave of guilt. When I, when I thought about that, it, it took me to a situation where, where when we go on vacation, we, we love going to the beach. How many of you have been to the beach and like to ride waves or at least to let the waves crash over you? Okay, there's a few here. Um, I, we love using boogie boards, body boards, um, and I'm pretty good at catching a wave and letting it take me all the way into, into the shore. Um, down, down on the outer banks here, it happened, it happened once in Africa too, but uh, you think you'd learn, right? Um, but a wave that I thought, okay, I can catch this one, it grabbed me and slammed me into the sand, face first. Broke my nose, broke my pinky finger, heard a major crack in my neck, and I, and I thought the worst had happened until I could wiggle my fingers and toes. Oh, okay, good. I'm okay. But it was that sense of a wave just crashing over you. No, nothing you could do about it. It just slams you. And I think Judas was overwhelmed by this monstrous wave of guilt that just came over him, crashed over him, because what he felt was just the essential wrongness what he did. And built into every human soul, no matter how sinful and how depraved, how vile and how unconscionable a person may be, there is still built into them a sense of wrongness, an innate understanding of the essential evil of a certain deed. You think about Judas. How evil must a man be to spend three years with Jesus and then wind up betraying him? denying the reality of all the miracles that he was a part of, that he saw, denying the reality of the deity of Jesus Christ, rejecting his love, rejecting his mercy, his kindness, his, uh, his grace, his compassion, rejecting his power, totally unbelieving, no faith in Christ as the Son of God, no faith in him as the Savior. He was so far gone and so evil that way back near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus was talking to his disciples in the beginning in John 6, verse 70, I have, have I not chosen you twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Way back in the beginning. And it says he was referring to Judas, who was later going to betray him. This is a man deeply trapped in the darkness and blackness of his own evil soul. And it's amazing to note that as profoundly evil as he was, he cannot escape 
the divinely designed internal mechanism of guilt that God has placed there to warn people of impending hell. God has built into even the worst of sinners a sense of wrong, a sense of evil that should set off alarm, our alarm system. It's actually a gift. If you think about it, that's a gift from God to man to hold us back from the evil and of its ultimate end, which is eternal hell. And Jesus, uh, excuse me, Judas was hit by this guilt. Some translations say that Judas repented. That's not what he did. That's not at all what he did. The Greek word for repentance is metanaeo, which is used all through the Bible for salvation repentance or genuine repentance from sin, from turning away from sin. But that's not the word used here in Matthew. It's the word uh, metamelomai, which means to feel sorry, to feel remorse. It's an emotional sorrow, an attitude that wishes it hadn't happened. I wish I hadn't done that. This is horrible. But it didn't take him to the next step of repentance. And the only thing he knew to do was to try to undo what he had done. So he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Now, it's interesting that he actually acknowledges his sin at at that point. He goes and confesses his sin to the chief priests and elders, but he's only trying to relieve his psychological and emotional pain. He goes to the evil men that bribed him first to try to get help. There's no sense of seeking God or seeking the Lord for forgiveness. He wasn't seeking righteousness. He was looking for, for relief from his pain the blood money that he wanted so badly for which he himself had gone to the chief priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees uh, to make a deal with them, that guilt from that blood money burned a hole into his heart. And folks, that's what sin does to us. Sin is like that. It looks so enticing, doesn't it? And so full of promise. It might actually be enjoyable and fun in the midst of it. But it's going to burn a hole into our soul. It's going to be able to burn a hole into our heart that only Jesus can heal. But even as he heals and he promises he can do that, oftentimes we are still left with the horrible consequences that we might have to deal with for the rest of our life. It's not worth it. Not worth it. But this is an amazing confession by the betrayer of the Son of God. I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Do you know what just happened? Judas is testifying to the perfection of Jesus Christ. The whole Sanhedrin tried to accuse Jesus. Many false witnesses were were brought trying to accuse Jesus. Uh, Judas tried to accuse Jesus. Satan himself, through Judas, was trying to accuse Jesus. And Judas ends up overruling Satan, working in him, and says he's innocent. Rather amazing if you think about it. Especially when you think about a person who is so distressed, who is under so much anxiety and guilt, who will try every possible thing in, that comes to their mind to come up with something that Jesus did or said to justify their actions. We often justify our actions. Oh, and we pick out the minutest little things. Oh, okay, I, I'm okay. I don't have to worry about that anymore. But he couldn't do it. 
He couldn't do it. And the conclusion he came to is that he, Jesus, is innocent. And that he truly is the Son of God. And that's what he told the chief priests. He told the elders as he gave them back the 30 pieces of silver. And you know what the response, their response was when he came back? Verse 4 tells us, What's that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. He's coming back to the spiritual leaders. He's coming back to try to make things right for them to reconsider their decision, to relieve his own guilt, and they didn't care. They didn't care about Judas. They certainly didn't care about Jesus. And they didn't even care about themselves and about what they had done. Their minds and hearts had become so depraved that there was no conscience left. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and in 24, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. Therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And that's actually what we're seeing here in, in, our, in our society today, isn't it? Why do you think there's such a moral downfall in our country? Why do you think horrible policies are being put into place that defies all logic and, 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 and all morals? Because they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they neither glorify Him as God nor give thanks to Him. Therefore, God has given them over to the simple desires of their hearts. This is nothing new. It was happening back in Jesus' day. It was happening in Paul's day. And that's, that's why Paul was writing about it. And it continues to happen today. And Judas has fallen into that trap of not glorifying God and not giving thanks to Him. And his mind has become depraved, filled with sinful desires. And God gave him over to do that. But Judas has a problem now. He was feeling horrible guilt. And even in his depraved state of mind, it was clear enough to remember what was probably written, what was written in the law about what he had done. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 35, it says, Cursed is anyone who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. Exactly what Judas had done. So he felt this tremendous guilt and knew he was under a curse. So he goes back to the man who, shouldn't, who should have had an answer for his plea for help. And they said, we don't care. Deal with it. We're not going to help you. And there's a reason for that, and we're going to look at that in just a second here. But I want us to see what Judas did at this point. He actually did two things. First in verse 5, so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Now the word indicates that he threw the money down in angry defiance. In angry defiance. Why? Well, he had gone to the leaders and tried to give the money back, and they wouldn't take it. So he says he threw the money in, into the temple and left. Now, the temple, that's a big place. You've got the Holy of Holies right in the center, the tallest building, and there's a holy place surrounding it. Uh, and then you've got the court of women for the Jewish women, and then you've got the court of Gentiles. That whole area is known as the temple. So where in the world did Judas throw those 30 pieces of silver? Anybody could have picked it up, right? What good would that have done? Again, Scripture is very specific. 
And it's important to understand it because where he threw it, I believe, indicates why he threw it. It comes down to the word used for temple. There are two words in the Greek language used in the Gospels for temple. One is hiran, and the other is naos. The first one means the whole temple area, the courtyards, the walls, the whole thing, a very general term for all the temple grounds. The other is the word naos, which refers to the holy place and the holy of holies, the sanctuary in the middle of the temple. When Judas went back, he didn't just throw the silver in frustration into the outer courtyard where anybody could pick it up, into the Heron. He threw it in the Naas. He went to the door of the holy place and the holy of holies there, and he took the money and threw it inside the holy place, the Naas. Why? I think he did it out of anger, but I think he did it out of spite as well. There was only one group of people who would be in the Naas, in in that courtyard. It would be the priests. And they were part of the Sanhedrin. And he was saying to them, if you won't take it willingly and do something with it, I'll force you to take it and do something with it. And he threw it into the place where only the priests could go, and so they had to deal with it, whether they wanted to or not. So I think it was an act of spite here on Judas's part. Then it says he went out and hanged himself. Why did he hang himself instead of doing something else? Well, there's some speculation that he felt that's what he deserved for the whole thing that he did. You see, in Deuteronomy 21, 23, it tells us that he that is hanged is accursed by God. I think Judas takes his life in this way as an ultimate act of punishment upon himself and does it in a way that is ultimately cursed by God doing to himself what he feels he justly deserves because of the overpowering guilt that exists in his soul because of the sin that he committed. He went and hanged himself. Now listen, verse 6. The chief priests now have that money. What are they going to do with it? It says the chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. Boy. Talk about hypocrisy, huh? They took the money out of the treasury to pay Judas. Oh, but now we can't put it back in the treasury. Now it's blood money. Do you realize what they're saying here? It's rather unbelievable if you think about it. You not only have the testimony of Judas to the innocence of Christ, but now you've got the testimony of the whole Sanhedrin. They finally said it's blood money. Blood money, of course, is money illegitimately paid to someone to kill someone else. The whole Sanhedrin knew that Jesus was innocent and they paid what they knew was blood money to kill an innocent person. But now they're stuck. (laughs) They've got 30 pieces of silver strewn around the small courtyard of the holy place. They can't just leave it there. They can't put it back in the treasury. That's unacceptable. So they called a meeting. Okay, let's have a committee meeting. Let's decide what we need to do here. Literally, they took counsel, verse 7. So they decided, they took counsel, to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. Oh, isn't that nice? What a nice gesture. What's a potter's field? A potter's field was a field that had a lot of clay on it, virtually no topsoil, just 
rock and then all kinds of clay. Pottery was a big industry in that area, and the potters would go to the field, uh, a field like this, and get clay to turn their various uh, cooking pots and things of that sort. Now, this particular field may have been well used over, over the years, and most of the clay may have been totally gone. It's now down to bare rock. The field is basically worthless, and so it's cheap. And so they decide to buy the potter's field to bury foreigners and strangers, also known as Gentiles, non-Jews. I mean, you know, foreigners, Gentiles, uh, often came to Jerusalem. There's a lot of them. They, they would come for pilgrimages and other things. And if they happened to die, if they got sick and died, if they had an accident and died, if they're elderly and died, uh, got to do something with them, well, uh, we certainly can't bury them alongside the Jews. That would contaminate the Jews. They wanted to a place to put the Gentiles. So they basically used worthless money to buy a worthless field to bury worthless Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? That was their idea of a goodwill gesture towards the Gentiles who came to Jerusalem and died. So we see the contrast between the guilty Judas and what's happening there and the innocent Christ. And that brings us to our third contrast here. The hypocrisy of men and their plots versus the prophecy of God. So they bought this field, the potter's field, kind of a nice thing to do, right? Theoretically. But verse 8 says, that is why it has been called, not the potter's field, the field of blood to this day. Now this is not the official name. That was the nickname given by the local people. It's been called. See, word got out and everybody knew that Jesus had been executed by bribery. So they started calling it the field of blood because it was bought with blood money. Now, is it really called that to this day? Thank you for asking. There's a valley south of Jerusalem called Ben-Hinnom Valley. It's also known as Gehenna Valley. You remember the term Gehenna? Back in the Old Testament times, this particular valley was known as Topheth, where children were presented as burnt offerings to Molech and other Canaanite gods. That's what this area, this valley was used for. Thankfully, King Josiah ended that horrible practice in 2 Kings chapter 23. But in later years, the valley was used for incinerating the corpses of criminals and unclean animals, and also the place to burn garbage uh, that, that was uh, taken out of the city. And from these practices, the Greek form Gehinnom, shortened to Gehenna, came into use as a synonym for hell. And you remember as we looked at Matthew chapter 5 back a few months ago, <laughs> Jesus talked about Gehenna in relationship to the fires of hell. So from the time of Judas until today, there is a burial place located in the eastern part of the valley of Gehenna called Akeldama, meaning field of blood. Isn't that interesting? Some goodwill gesture by the Gentiles, right? For the Gentiles. Let's buy a field to bury the Gentiles alongside corpses of criminals, unclean animals, and garbage. So we have the testimony of the Sanhedrin. They can't find anything against Jesus. The testimony of Judas, we can't find anything against him. Testimony of the Pilate that we'll look at uh, next week, uh, he's an innocent man. 
The testimony of the Sanhedrin, this is blood money, the whole thing is illegal. Testimony of the whole population of Jerusalem, that it's a field of blood. Jesus died of bribery. Because of bribery, the whole testimony comes together here. Isn't it amazing that all these people did all of that on their own? All these, and it just happened, happened to work out the way God wanted to. Do you really think this is all done by men? Do you know what actually happened? It's fascinating, really. It turns out that the hypocrisy of men and all of their plans were nothing but fulfilling the prophecy of God. Listen to verse 9 and 10. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. 550 years before this took place, it was prophesied. Men thought they were doing their own thing, and all the time they were just fulfilling God's plan. It was prophecy. Now listen carefully as we close. There's two things I want to note here concerning these verses. First of all, and this is a detail that's good to know to have great confidence in God's word, this prophecy that Matthew refers to actually comes from Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 and 13. It's changed slightly from the Hebrew, altered by the Holy Spirit to give its full meaning, but it's a direct prophecy from Zechariah. Matthew writes, then what was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. Uh Uh-oh. Error, 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 right? No matter what we do, and some have tried, you can't make that prophecy fit into Jeremiah because it's not there. So the obvious question is, there you go, is the Bible wrong? Why does Matthew say Jeremiah? It's actually a very simple explanation. When the Jews divided the Old Testament, they divided it into three sections, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, or the Psalms. And if we were to look, for example, at Luke chapter 24, verse 44, we'd find that Jesus refers to the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. All the wisdom literature falls under the heading, the Psalms. That includes Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, all of them. But his heading is the Psalms. The category of the prophets in rabbinic tradition and manuscripts, as well as a Talmud, is always headed by the book of Jeremiah. It's the title of that section. So to the Jew, the three sections of the Old Testament would be the law, Jeremiah, and the Psalms. So when a writer refers to Jeremiah, he's simply taking the name that was the top of the prophetic role, which was Jeremiah, because his prophecy was listed first in, at that time. And then you got all the rest of the major prophets and the minor prophets that were included in there. And so it's no different than what Jesus did when he referred to the Psalms, the whole category of wisdom literature as the Psalms because that was a heading on that scroll. So there's no contradiction here. That was prophesied from the section of Jeremiah out of the prophets, but more specifically, the prophet of Zechariah. The second thing, and perhaps even more interesting, that interested me, (laughs) is the prophecy itself. 
The act of buying that field to bury strangers was a testimony to the whole community. And the point I want to make is this. It is a lasting memorial down through the ages to the bribery and to the blood money offered for an innocent man. Why do I say that? Well, if you would look at Acts chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Peter is speaking to the other believers about the need to choose another apostle to replace Judas, who had betrayed Jesus. And he says this, Judas fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. (laughs) Pretty graphic. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about it, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, we talked about that, that is, field of blood. Now, you may be thinking, I thought he hanged himself. Well, he did, because Matthew tells us that. Again, there seems to be a contradiction. Really? Not really. Scholars believe that in an attempt to hang himself on a tree, perhaps over the edge of a, a, a partial cliff, either the branch broke or the rope broke or the rope slid, and he fell to the rocks below and his body kind of splatted. But the point that I'm trying to make is not that, however. It's that what Peter was talking to the others, when he was talking to the others in Acts 1, when they needed to choose 12, the 12th disciple, that speech occurred only 43 days after the field was bought. So within 43 days, the people were already calling that field the field of blood. The news had already gotten out. When Matthew was writing his gospel that we're looking at this morning... He wrote it about 35 years later, and it was still known as the field of blood. And even today, the valley known as the Gehenna Valley, it's also referred to as the Al-Qadama Valley, the field of blood, as a lasting witness to the innocence of Jesus. That's amazing. The plot of men? No. The plan of God? using evil, sinful, rebellious men, prophesied by Zechariah about 550 years before Christ. Folks, our God is an awesome God, and His Word is awesome. So, Pastor, what's your point today? (laughs) Good question. In the beginning of the message, if you remember, I said that I believe that the primary purpose of Matthew for writing this narrative by the power of the Holy Spirit, was to demonstrate the innocence, the purity, the perfection, and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Over and over again, I am amazed at how he does that. Here, Jesus appears to be humiliated, going through all this horrible stuff, but the truth is, he is being exalted. Even in the midst of this, he's exalted by the inability of the council to find any accusation against him. He's exalted by the testimony of the chief witness and bribed traitor as to his innocence. He's exalted by the testimony of the Sanhedrin themselves, that they have blood money in their hands. He's exalted by the testimony of the people of Jerusalem who call everything related to the incident a field of blood. And he is exalted by the very fact that all this fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah. Jesus is exalted. And so out of the ugliness of the scene of Judas's suicide comes the beauty of Jesus Christ. And he stands majestic, and he stands exalted, and that's the writer's intention. And the question this morning is, is he 
exalted in your life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning, it's amazing as we delve into your scripture, there's details like, like that, and sometimes it's, uh, details can be overwhelming and uh, of little interest, but when, when we look at some of those details, it's amazing what all you have put into your word to make us so clear who Jesus is. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is exalted. Uh, Paul tells us in the Philippians that he will be exalted, though he humbled himself unto death on the cross. He will be exalted. And even in the process of going to the cross, even then, you are exalting, exalting him. And Father, I pray that in our lives, that we would have Jesus exalted, that he would take first place, that he would be the king of our life, that he would be the Lord of our life in every aspect. Father, thank you. We praise you and we glorify you for who Jesus is for us. In Jesus' name, amen.